When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey there, Hit Parade listeners. What you're about to hear is part one of this episode. Part two will arrive in your podcast feed at the end of the month. Would you like to hear this episode all at once, the day it drops? Sign up for Slate Plus. It supports not only this show, but all of Slate's acclaimed journalism and podcasts. Just go to slate.com slash hitparadeplus. You'll get to hear every Hit Parade episode in full the day it arrives. Plus, Hit Parade The Bridge, our bonus episodes, with guest interviews, deeper dives on our episode topics, and pop chart trivia. Once again, to join, that's slate.com slash hitparadeplus. Thanks. And now, please enjoy part one of this Hit Parade episode. <laughs> Welcome to Hit Parade, a podcast of pop chart history from Slate Magazine about the hits from coast to coast. I'm Chris Melanfi, chart analyst, pop critic, and writer of Slate's Why Is This Song Number One series. On today's show, 21 years ago, in March of 2002, the latest single by a platinum recording artist was marching into the top 40 on Billboard's Hot 100. Only, this song didn't much sound like the tracks that had made her a hitmaker. It did have a thumping, syncopated beat, making the song radio-friendly at the peak of glossy hip-hop and millennial teen pop. But the primary instrument on the track was rock guitar, and the singer sounded a whole lot like a rocker herself. Alicia Moore, the singer who called herself Pink, was pulling off a brazen act of music business rebellion. She was abandoning the sound that had made her name and scoring a big hit anyway. Pink had to fight her own record company president to do this. How could you tell? She called him out right in the lyrics of the song. LA told me pop star all you have to change is everything you are this would not be the last time pink threw shade at fellow artists in a hit song what happened to the dream of a girl president she's dancing in the video next to 50 cent traveling packs of two and three with their itsy 
or presented herself as a rock star. By the way, sometimes she said that right out loud in her lyrics, too. What made this remarkable was that Pink started out not trying to be a rocker at all. At first, she was marketed as a hip-hop diva in training. And even racially ambiguous. But Pink soon realized her music could encompass a little bit of everything. At a time when other pop acts were copping rock moves to get over on the charts, and even the rock acts were preening and boogieing like pop stars. Well, somebody told me you had a boyfriend who looked like a girlfriend that I had in bed. Pink was ahead of the curve. She anticipated the merging of rock back into millennial dance pop, scored a string of hits, and found her own lane, even if she sometimes confounded the marketplace. or sent radio programmers reaching for the censor button. Today on Hit Parade, we get the party started with Pink, the pop fans rocker gal and the modern feminists shit talker. She has never been a shrinking violet, whether she's commanding you to leave her alone at the club. Or demanding that you join her on the dance floor. This individualism was established two decades ago when Alicia Moore took on her record label, fought them to a draw, and was told they would give her the freedom to fail. Only she didn't fail. And that's where your hit parade marches today, the week ending March 23rd, 2002, when Pink passed herself on the Billboard Hot 100 with two very different singles. At number 27 that week, on its way down, her recent top five dance floor smash, Get the Party Started. And at number 26 and rising... Her future top 10 hit, Don't Let Me Get Me, which established Pink as the new millennium's open-hearted, filter-free icon. 
From then on, the guitars got more prominent as Pink threw her powerhouse vocals at rock, R&B, dance, torch songs, hip-hop, even country, all of it infused with her bravado and capital A attitude. How did Pink create her own multifarious pop genre and become everybody's favorite sassy but sensitive badass? Ever think those fables and fairy tales from back in the day are just a little bit dusty? Wondery and Tinkercast are bringing you a new kids and family podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Join host DJ Fuchs and his trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as they deliver remixes of fables and folktales, rhythm and rhymes, and fun spins on classics as old as time. Grab the whole family and get ready to groove because they're putting the rap in Rapunzel and getting down with that funky duckling. Where hip-hop and fables meet, it's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to all episodes of Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Before we go deep on Pink, let's consider a previous dance floor diva who occasionally wanted to rock. Here's 1983's Burning Up, one of Madonna's earliest singles. Burning Up is hard to pigeonhole. It's a club record with prominent rock guitar. Madonna was inspired by her years in New York City punk clubs. She'd even recorded some early demos with a punk band. And it has a sinister edge that's less like disco and more like post-punk or new wave. Indeed, a quarter century later, Blender magazine would rank Burning Up as one of its 40 quintessential new wave songs, alongside electro-rock classics by the likes of Gary Newman, Devo, and New Order. You could imagine an adventurous rock station in 1983 playing Madonna's rock and jam alongside those new wave bands. But because Burning Up had dance beats, and because Madonna was not only a new artist in 1983, but a woman, the only Billboard chart it touched was the Club Play chart. It didn't make the Hot 100, and it certainly didn't make the rock charts. Night, you love, you're not convinced that that is 
Of course, Madonna did just fine on the Hot 100 later, with poppier hits like Holiday, Borderline, and Lucky Star, but she never really recorded anything like Burning Up again. Generally, female vocalists of earlier generations who wanted rock credibility had to rock pretty hard, whether it was Janis Joplin, Tina Turner, Joan Jett, or Pat Benatar. Rocker gals like Turner or Benatar would only move toward poppier songs after they had established themselves at album-oriented rock or AOR radio. Benatar's late 83 hit, Love is a Battlefield, doesn't sound far removed from Madonna's earlier single, Burning Up. But unlike Madonna, who was never played by rock stations, Benatar remained a fixture on rock radio. Now, all of these artists I've named have long been cited as influences on Pink's career some of them by Pink herself. But here's the thing. Janis Joplin, Tina Turner, Joan Jett, and Pat Benatar have all made Billboard's Rock Tracks charts. Pink, however, like Madonna, has not. This is fairly remarkable because few female pop stars of her generation have done more to integrate rock back into post-millennial, post-hip-hop popular music than Pink. Ask the average Pink fan to describe the artist, and that fan might well call Pink a rocker. Heck, even Grammy voters gave a Best Female Rock Vocal Performance statue to Pink nearly two decades ago for her minor hit, Trouble. But when it comes to radio formats and billboard charts, Pink somehow does not qualify for the rock category. It's hard for any artist to overcome a first impression, but it seems especially hard for women who record danceable pop music, like Madonna after Burning Up. might say that Pink had to create her own bespoke sound, one that encompassed multiple genres. Well, I can run to the as I can. 
And so, like Madonna, she's learned to stand her ground. Speaking of which, the ladies have met each other. Here's Pink talking about Madonna with Howard Stern in February, just a few weeks ago. I'm a polarizing individual. But Madonna's a polarizing individual. She is, man. Fuck, I loved her. I I fucking love Madonna. I love her no matter what. Like, I I still love her. I love her no matter what. She was such an inspiration to me. But it sort of got twisted around that I was, like, fangirling and and was dying to meet Madonna when, in actuality, she invited me into her dressing room. Listen, I got a surprise for you. Madonna's here, and she's going to fight you now. You're going to go three (laughs) rounds. Pink has never been shy about speaking her mind. But before she could invent the genre we might now call pink music, she had to fit into a very specific sound that was ruling the airwaves in the closing years of the 20th century. Alicia Beth Moore, born in 1979 to a Catholic father and Jewish mother in the Philadelphia suburb of Doylestown, Pennsylvania, developed a potent voice at an early age. When she wasn't focusing on gymnastics, which, by the way, would come in handy later in her career, young Alicia was singing. As we discussed in our Hall & Oates episode of Hit Parade, Philly was a melting pot of multiracial sounds, and Moore grew up around both white and black music. By her early teenage years, Alicia Moore, a troubled teen who, after her parents divorced, often ran away from home, was already performing at Philly nightclubs. One club gave her a regular Friday singing slot after she wowed the crowd on an open mic night with a Mary J. Blige song. There are several origin stories for Pink's nickname. One of the more plausible was that Moore, as the only white girl in her friend group, was dubbed Pink. After serving as a dancer and then a vocalist for such local R&B acts as Schools of Thought and Basic Instinct, neither of which wound up recording with her, Pink was recruited to join the white R&B trio Choice. Choice recorded Key to My Heart when Pink and her fellow vocalists were just 16 years old. On the strength of the song, in 1995, the girl group was flown to Atlanta, Georgia for a meeting with the man we discussed in our Outcast episode of Hit Parade, L.A. Reid, the producer turned president of La Face Records the label he co-founded with his songwriting partner, Babyface. In the mid-90s, LaFace was riding high, not only with OutKast, but with R&B acts like the girl group TLC. Don't go 
L.A. Reid did indeed sign Choice. The teen trio's parents had to co-sign the contract with them, and issued their one and only single on the 1996 soundtrack to the family film Kazam. By the way, that's the actual movie Kazam, starring basketball player Shaquille O'Neal, not the misremembered movie Shazam, starring comedian Sinbad. Shazam didn't exist. It's a collective fake memory and an example of the Mandela effect. Google it if you don't believe me. But I digress. Anyway, Choice recorded a whole album for LaFace that would never see release. Pink, however, showed promise in the studio. When producer Daryl Simmons asked Pink if she could help write a song, she co-wrote Just To Be Loving You. Here's a small snippet of that unreleased demo. Just to be Simmons was impressed, and he notified L.A. Reid that Pink was the member of Choice with star potential. So, by 1998, Reed had given Pink an ultimatum, go solo or go home. Pink chose the former. Choice broke up, and their album was permanently shelved. Pink had proven she could sing and even potentially write in an R&B mode. So that's what LaFace set her up to do for her debut album. It wasn't just a good time in 1998 for R&B on the charts. It was the peak of teen R&B. like Destiny's Child, the early years, or Brandy and Monica. Or Aaliyah. Of course, teen pop by white acts was also ruling the charts in 1998 and 99, including Britney Spears, and Christina Aguilera. L.A. Reid and his team felt Pink could play both sides of the fence, not unlike their flagship girl group, TLC. No scrubs. TLC's number one smash from the spring of 1999, with its sleek, chiming, percolating hip-hop sound, was a template for what Pink did on her debut album. 
Pink was set up with the same producer and songwriters who'd worked on No Scrubs, Kevin Shakespeare Briggs and Candy Burris. And together with Pink, they wrote and produced her first hit. Even if There You Go sounded an awful lot like No Scrubs, the song was full of Pink's personality. There You Go was a kiss-off to a former lover who didn't measure up, a foreshadowing of later Pink hits. If you won't talk, I'll walk. Yeah, it's like that. I got a new man. He's waiting out back. Now what? What you think about that? Released in January of 2000, There You Go appeared on Billboard's R&B hip-hop songs chart first, where it eventually reached number 15. On the Hot 100 pop chart, the song debuted a week later and topped out at number 7. In April, just as There You Go reached its peak, LaFace Records released Pink's debut album, titled can't take me home. On the cover, in an overlit photo, the 20-year-old Pink wore reflective sunglasses and very close-cropped hair, a look that made her ethnicity hard to discern. This was definitely LaFace's intention. Millennial music fans were beguiled by Pink's early identity. Two decades later, in an article titled Soulful Vanilla Child, When Pink Was Black, Jezebel culture writer Ashley Reese wrote, quote, Can't Take Me Home was an undoubtedly R&B and hip-hop-influenced vehicle that was an odd preamble to a very different career. When I saw the music video for the album's first hit, There You Go, in which Pink is out for an early aughts version of Empowered Revenge, I assumed she was a black woman. She tells her ex-boyfriend off in what can only be described as a bit of a black scent, unquote. I thought I told you not to call. Is that bitch still with you? No, she's gone. She's out of my life. Well, well I'm busy. What do you want? Uh, stupid carbs busted. Can I bum a ride? Still don't have a ride? All right, I'm, I'm gonna hook you up. Whatever the motivations, crass or clever, Pink's black-adjacent presentation worked on the charts. Can't Take Me Home debuted on the all-genre Billboard 200 album chart at number 26, and on the R&B hip-hop album chart at number 23. It rode both charts for more than a year. At the peak of MTV's Total Request Live and its melange of millennial pop and B, Pink came across as TRL's newest all-audiences flavor. She did not want to be pinned down. You're sort of uh, image-wise like the rebellious sort of badass, and what are your thoughts on maybe these other TRL artists? Sarah, what do you think of them? Um, I respect anybody that gets up in the morning and works hard and follows their dreams. 
I love artists like Janis Joplin and Four Non Blondes and Mary J. Blige. I'm all over the place. I just, you know. She's a I regular like human jukebox. That's for sure. Good there music go. is important. We need to get to the number six video. More with Pink after this. This is Christina Aguilera. I turn to you. Up a couple of spots on TRL. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Pink's debut CD continued spawning hits on both the pop and R&B charts, including Most Girls, co-written by Babyface, which reached number four in the fall of 2000. And You Make Me Sick, produced by Babyface, which reached number 33 in the winter of 2001. By the start of 2001, Can't Take Me Home was double platinum. Pink was now an established enough star that she was invited to join a supergroup to record a song from a movie, Baz Luhrmann's retro nuevo pastiche Moulin Rouge. The song would wind up as Pink's first number one hit and the last gasp of her career as a crossover R&B star. Perhaps then it was appropriate that this song was a cover of a 70s soul classic. Lady Marmalade, the delightfully raunchy LaBelle classic about New Orleans sex workers, which we discussed in last year's R&B Queens episode of Hit Parade, had already gone to number one on the Hot 100 once, way back in 1975. Tom Bryan, writer of Stereo Gum's The Number Ones column, eloquently notes that the song, quote, exists at some genre-free nether realm where disco and soul and funk and rock all intersect. Unquote. Did Lady Marmalade need to be remade? Not really. LaBelle's version was already pretty perfect. But could it be remade into a chart-topping millennial blockbuster? A four-diva pileup? Oh my, yes. Where's all my soul, sisters? Let me hear your flow, sisters. Hey, sister, go, sister, soul, sister, flow, sister. Oh. 
for the remake, producer and mistress of ceremonies Missy Elliott recruited teen queen Christina Aguilera, raunchy rapper Lil Kim, dancer-singer Maya, and the newest hitmaker of the bunch, Pink. The reboot was pure Hollywood synergy, even swapping the original lyric about Old New Orleans for the name of the titular Parisian cabaret from Lorman's film for maximum promotion. Each of the ladies took turns on lead vocals, and reportedly, Aguilera and Pink didn't get along, either in the studio or during the shooting of the lingerie-clad video. Though the rebooted song had been shepherded by Aguilera's management as a showcase for her, critics generally agreed that Pink might have done the all-around best job vocally. Released in the spring of 2001, the four diva version of Marmalade took less than two months to reach number one, spending five weeks atop the Hot 100. Later that summer, its music video took Video of the Year at the MTV Video Music Awards. Finally, it was also the last Pink-affiliated song to make Billboard's R&B hip-hop chart, where it only reached number 43. As it happened, that summer, Pink herself was already rethinking her carefully marketed multi-genre profile. As Lady Marmalade was commanding the Hot 100, she was working on the follow-up to her Can't Take Me Home album and fighting for more creative control. She felt that her debut, successful as it was, had misrepresented who she really was. Accordingly, Pink would title her second album, Misunderstood. The creatively misspelled album title, M-I-S-S-U-N-D-A-Z-T-O-O-D, would go down in history as the first great self-reinvention by a pop star of the new millennium. But it wasn't easy. LaFace president L.A. Reid heard Pink's early demos and was convinced she was committing commercial suicide. Mostly, he was confused by the collaborator Pink had approached entirely on her own, a woman who hadn't had a hit in nearly a decade. Linda Perry was the lead singer-songwriter of the short-lived all-female rock band Four Non-Blondes, who scored a number 14 hit back in 1993 with What's Up, a strummy, don't-worry-be-happy-mimicking sing-along. 
Perry left Four Non Blondes after just one album, uninspired by their follow-up recordings. She later told Rolling Stone, quote, I wasn't really a big fan of my band, unquote. Hey, Linda, that makes two of us. You know who was a huge fan of Four Non Blondes, though? A very young Alicia Moore. Four Non Blondes was my favorite record for so long, when I was like 12 and 13. And I found her number, and I was like, this is too weird, I have to call her. I don't know what I'm going to say. I don't even know what I want, I just want to tell her I love her. So I called her up and I left her this 10 minute long message. I knew that I loved her music, I loved her voice, I wanted her to sing on a song with me. It was so much easier than I thought it was going to be. The first song Linda Perry presented to Pink in their writing sessions was an up-tempo jam that didn't sound much like Four Non Blondes. Perry had been deliberately trying to write a dance pop song. It had funk rock guitar, but also hip-hop syncopation. Pink took one listen and decided she had to have it. This song would, she later said, serve as a bridge between what she'd been doing on her debut album and what she wanted to do on her sophomore album. Even L.A. Reid liked it. It was commercial and full of attitude, perfect for Pink. And Linda Perry had given it a dead obvious commercial title, Get the Party Started. Reed agreed that Party could be the first single from the new album, but he didn't much like any of the other material Perry and Pink were co-writing and producing in Perry's home studio. Rock-flavored cuts with trippy titles like Gone to California, Lonely Girl, and My Vietnam. This is my But in the end, Reed couldn't talk Pink into recording more R&B tracks or out of her new direction. After weeks of fruitless arguments, he relented and said he was giving Pink, quote, the opportunity to fail. In a later interview with the LA Times, Pink said she knew what she was signing up for and was grateful to Reed, quote, I knew the risk involved. I'd seen artists change styles and fail miserably, but I've also seen artists change and continue to do well. That's why Madonna has always been an inspiration for me. I told L.A. I had faith in my ability and was willing to take the chance. And I have so much respect for him because he turned around during that meeting. By the end, he said, okay, let's do it, unquote. In a kind of teasing homage to L.A. Reid, Pink wrote him into the lyrics of another track that wound up on Misunderstood, the future hit Don't Let Me Get Me. She also made clear in that lyric what or whom she did not want to be. L.A. told me Pop star, all you have to 
Ironically, despite its rock flavor, Don't Let Me Get Me was not co-written by Linda Perry. It was instead co-written by Pink with Dallas Austin, a journeyman R&B and pop songwriter who'd penned hits for Boys to Men, Madonna, and especially TLC. Doubly ironically, Austin had originally been invited to contribute to Pink's debut, Can't Take Me Home, but demurred, saying he didn't like the R&B direction the label was taking her in. Pink admired Dallas Austin's sense of principle and asked to work with him again, and this time they co-wrote four songs, including two of Misunderstood's most rock-leaning hits, Don't Let Me Get Me and Just Like a Pill. In short, Misunderstood was, top to bottom, Pink's vision. She was, if you will, its auteur. She still worked with experienced hitmakers, but she aimed them in the direction she wanted to go. The album still had R&B and pop flavor, but it was crossed with rock. Linda Perry, a rock songwriter, gave Pink the album's big dance hit. Get the Party Started arrived in the fall of 2001 and shot to number four on the Hot 100. And Dallas Austin, the R&B songwriter, helped Pink craft the most rock-forward hit, Don't Let Me Get Me. In the spring of 2002, it went to number eight. When Just Like a Pill followed in summer 02 and also reached number eight, Misunderstood became Pink's first album to generate three top ten hits. Pill also became her first UK number one hit. Each Misunderstood single was more personal than the last. Pill was a metaphor for Pink's previous experiments with drugs, thinly disguised as a gripe about a toxic relationship. For the fourth single, Family Portrait, co-written with hip-hop producer Scott Storch, Pink bared it all, recounting the violence of her parents' divorce. Even that harrowing song was a hit, reaching number 20 by early 2003. By then, Misunderstood had been riding the album chart for more than a year and had sold millions. It would eventually be certified quintuple platinum. Pink's label-defying experiment had become her biggest album. It is still, to this day, her top seller. 
It should also be noted that Pink had gotten ahead of a shift in pop music. Britney and Backstreet Boys style teen pop was on the wane by 2002 and 03. And teen music began to move in a more rock-oriented direction, symbolized best by Avril Lavigne, whom we discussed in our Pop Punk and Emo episode of Hit Parade. Funnily enough, L.A. Reid had signed Levine while Pink was working on her second album. And months after Misunderstood dropped, Levine's album Let Go blew up. In essence, Pink had opened up the market for Avril. By 2003, Pink had enough hipster credibility that folk-funk alt-rocker Beck gave her a song. Produced by electronica DJ William Orbit and recorded for the soundtrack to the Charlie's Angels sequel Full Throttle, Feel Good Time only reached number 60 on the Hot 100, but was remarkable just for existing. It was basically an electro-rock Beck song with Pink's vocals on it. Looking to see just how far she could push into rock, Pink doubled down on her third album, 2003's Try This. Though Linda Perry did come back for a couple of tracks, for the bulk of the album, Pink worked instead with this guy. Tim Armstrong, frontman for the Bay Area punk band Rancid, produced and co-wrote two-thirds of Try This. Keep in mind, on Misunderstood, Pink had worked with a former rocker dabbling in pop, Perry, and R&B hip-hop producers who were dabbling in rock, Austin and Storch. What would it sound like when Pink recorded a full album with a full-time rock dude? Well... Try This rocked pretty hard. Though there were still traces of hip-hop and soul on the album, by and large, the LP moved in Tim Armstrong's direction. Several critics even pointed out that the album's first single, Trouble, bore a strong resemblance to Nirvana's cover of Molly's Lips by indie rockers The Vaselines. The bad news was the pop world was not entirely ready for Pink's shift toward hard rock. Though it did make the top 10 in the UK and Australia, in America, Trouble was kind of a bomb, peaking on the Hot 100 at number 68. 
For the album's second single, Pink went with the more dance rock sound of God is a DJ. But it didn't right the ship. Even though it appeared on the soundtrack to the hit 2014 movie Mean Girls, God is a DJ missed the Hot 100 entirely, bubbling under the chart at number 103. As for the album, thanks to the goodwill generated by Misunderstood, Try This did crack the top 10, peaking at number 9. On the strength of Pink's loyal fans, it did quickly go platinum. But it was off the chart in just 15 weeks. Misunderstood had rode the chart for nearly two years, non-stop. The pushback L.A. Reid had feared for Pink's second album came instead on her third. She had tested how far she could evolve and gotten the first negative feedback of her career. Perhaps Pink was finally too far ahead of the curve. Within a year, other hybrids of rock with pop would storm the charts. But before she could fine-tune the contours of her sound, Pink would have to prove to the marketplace that she was in her own words, not dead. When we come back, Pink works with new Pops Vengalis and succumbs to the song machine, but on her terms. Could she make a chart comeback while still being herself? Hey, it's Pink. How could she be anything but herself? Non-Slate Plus listeners will hear the rest of this episode in two weeks. For now, I hope you've been enjoying this episode of Hit Parade. Our show was written, edited, and narrated by Chris Melanfi. That's me. My producer is Kevin Bendis. Derek John is executive producer of Narrative Podcasts, and Alicia Montgomery is VP of Audio for Slate Podcasts. Check out their roster of shows at slate.com slash podcasts. You can subscribe to Hit Parade wherever you get your podcasts, in addition to finding it in the Slate Culture feed. If you're subscribing on Apple Podcasts, please rate and review us while you're there. It helps other listeners find the show. Thanks for listening, and I look forward to leading the hit parade back your way. We'll see you for part two in a couple of weeks. Until then, keep on marching on the one. I'm Chris Melanfi. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. 
With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.